Hello, I'm Brett Dillon, and this is The Movie Chronicles. This episode, we take a peek at documentaries in 1993. Let's begin with history. 1993 was the Year of Indigenous People, during which, on February the 10th, the Italian Mani Politi Clean Hands investigation led to the resignation of Claudio Martelli. Other politicians in Italy resigned over the next two weeks, leading to the collapse of the First Republic. April 23rd, the World Health Organization declared tuberculosis to be a global emergency. April 26th, Oscar Luigi Scalfaro appointed Carlo Azeglio to be Prime Minister of Italy. June the 25th, Kim Campbell became the first female Prime Minister of Canada. October the 25th, in the federal election in Canada, Jean Chrétien and the Liberal Party defeated the Progressive Conservative Party. There's something oxymoronic about that as a party name. We begin in Canada to learn about Kanasataki, 270 Years of Resistance. Director, script and actor, Alanis Obonsawin. Director of Photography, Philippe Amagui. Francois Brault. Zoe Durst. André-Luc Dupont. Savas Calagueras. Jean-Claude Labrec, Barry Pearls, Roger Rocher, Jocelyn Samard, and Susan Trow. Editor, Yuri Luhovi. Music, Francis Gramont and Claude Vendette. Actors, Jack Burning and Herbie Barnes. The Ocker crisis was very similar to the Bastion Point protest in New Zealand. It comes as no surprise to me that Kanasataki gets its narrative structure from Meritometer's film Bastion Point, Day 507, although the end result seems to have been different. Director Alanis Obansawin embeds her camera crews into the action and borrows footage from news agencies. There are some talking head interviews, but most of the footage is contemporary to the events. In Oka, there was a white mayor who ignored the will of his constituents, ignored the facts of history, and doubled down on his ignorance so that a few white Canadians could make a profit. His actions cost the Canadian taxpayer $150 million, uh, roughly. The film doesn't mention what costs were included or hospital costs. The courts seem to have ruled, on the basis of this film, that most charges laid against the protesters were bogus. The cause of contention was a golf course which existed on disputed land. The mayor accepted a developer's offer to extend the course into a native burial site, without consultation, I should add. Many residents didn't want the expansion, according to the narrative of this film. I question this because as the protest develops and expands, it starts to inconvenience white folk. The natives are subjected to racist attacks. No whites attack the mayor, the police, the army, and they are all the cause of this trouble. 
This is also a good time to point out my rule of thumb in deciding which side of an issue to take. Imagine the opposite situation and what the reaction would be. If the developers had decided to expand into a white cemetery, and the mayor agreed to this without consulting the community, let alone the families affected by this decision, would these racist little pigs support the mayor and the developer? I know which side of this issue I would fall on. Therefore, it would be inconsistent of me not to support the native Canadians. The mayor brings in the police, who might have responded by arresting the mayor on multiple charges of conspiracy to interfere with a corpse. Instead, they become the tools of one side in a political issue in which they should be neutral. Even though this is Canada, it is also America, and calling the police calls in guns. Shots are fired, and one policeman is killed. It is unclear which side fired the fatal shot, although from what we are shown, the native warriors seem to be far more disciplined than the police. Bear in mind, however, that all documentaries are propaganda, and the film has been edited to give that impression. The police withdraw from an area they should not have gone into with a confrontational frame of mind, and respond by turning the area around Oka into a police state. They harass citizens and blame the natives. The argument they offer is the pain we are causing will go away once the uppity natives are dealt with. The film doesn't show any pushback to this strategy, but I'm guessing there was, because the army are now called in. The interviews with the army personnel make it clear the army command did not see the natives as Canadian. This is troubling, first for the use of the military against civilians, and second by the highly legally fraught tactic of implying this is acceptable, because a particular community are not citizens and therefore legitimate targets. Talks are begun at the neutral site of a Trappist monastery. At last, some sense. Why didn't the mayor try this before calling the police and the army? Abuse of power? Agreement is reached on 13 of the 15 issues at stake. The only matters not agreed on are the issue of native sovereignty over their own land, so a dipshit mayor can't sell their property from under them, this is a property rights issue that should be a no-brainer. If you allow this mayor to sell native property without their permission, then you are allowing him, or a later mayor, to sell your property without your permission, because the president has been set. And remember the law of legislative creep. Creeps in their legislature will always use president to extend their power and authority. The second issue was a demand that the protesters should not be arrested, which is fair. If you agree that native lands should not be stolen, then the natives protesting that theft have done nothing illegal. They have only asserted their property rights. With a solution within grasp, the army decided to escalate the situation and resorted to intimidation and torture. The film has to resort to mixing its media as the army clamped down on press coverage, covering up its crimes.
I have some sympathy for the army commander. He is clearly out of his depth and has no training in this area. That's because it's a civilian conflict. The army should not be involved in. He and his men are being used as political pawns. He is a hammer that sees all problems as nails. And he seems to be getting his cues from the British Army in Northern Ireland and drawing incorrect conclusions from that conflict. The real issue is his cowardice. He won't face his superiors and tell them this is a local, not an army matter. Instead, he puts the district on a war footing because that is all he knows how to do. By way of comparison, the New Zealand army were never called to Bastion Point. A point of similarity, however, is that one person did die at Bastion Point. Eventually, the warriors fade away, tired of the harassment, but proud that they never surrendered. The Ochre Crisis ran from July the 11th to September the 26th, 1993. In the 1660s, the Mohawk Nation moved into the area around Quebec, Canada. For the purposes of this film, the Kahasataki tribe is the most important group in this move. In 1673, their land was given to the Jesuits, but not by the tribe. The tribe kept being moved off their land with promises they would own the land they moved onto. The 1760 Act of Capitulation of Montreal led many tribes to advocate for the British to recognize their land rights. This did not go well. Thieves don't like being told where they can get off. In 1868, Chief Joseph Anasakenrat pointed out that 23 square kilometers of the Jesuit grant was supposed to be reserved for native use, but the Jesuits had seized the lot because, God, the missionary colonists were surrounded and given eight days to give the land back. Authorities resolved the issue with force. What else did they have? I.e. they never resolved the actual issue. In 1936, the Jesuits sold the land against the protests of the Mohawk Nation. By 1956, the tribe retained six square kilometers of their land, which was originally 165 square kilometers. The rest had been stolen. In 1959, the local council approved a golf course to be built near the Pines, a Mohawk burial ground. This was disputed, but legal arguments failed on technicalities. In March 1959, the golf club started plans to expand into the burial grounds, believing it did not need to consult with the Mohawk Nation as their previous land claims had failed. In 1990, the courts found in favour of the developers, and to do justice to the inhabitants of Oka, some of them didn't want a bar of this development. The mayor didn't want to listen to them. So, as of June the 30th, 1990, we have the Mohawk Nation infuriated with local and federal government, and we have some members of the town of Oka infuriated with the mayor. On March 11, protesters established a barricade on the road leading into the Pines, the burial area, and they refused to move it. 
the Provincial and Federal Native Affairs Minister was alerted to the possibility of conflict. The minister sent a strongly worded letter to the mayor of Oka saying, these people have seen their land disappear without compensation or consultation. It was perhaps the word compensated that caused the mayor to ignore the letter. On July the 30th, 100 police officers arrived at the scene. So poorly trained, they refused to negotiate with the tribe because the tribal negotiators were women. In response to police brutality, the Kahasaki Warrior Society took control of the two lanes of Highway 138 and the Mercia Bridge. This blocked traffic along Highways 132 and 207. Police reinforcements arrived, and they attacked. It didn't go well. Shots were fired, and one officer was struck dead. The coroner later found the police actions were unacceptable and even comical. The police now resorted to a siege strategy and got logistical support from the Canadian Army, something the Army should not have done, and the Native Affairs Minister should have warned them against becoming involved in a political situation. Indigenous people from across Canada and the USA now travelled across the country to join the siege on the side of the Mohawk Nation. Around Oka, the racists gave vent to their ignorance and hatred. On August the 28th, military action was announced as imminent. The government allowed safe passages to any protesters who wanted to leave. They also allowed white protesters to beat up anyone who left. One native was murdered. Score now, one all. On August 29th, a settlement was renegotiated. In essence, the federal government bought the disputed land and promised to give it to the Mohawk Nation. The purchase was made. The Mohawk Nation waited for the transfer of title. The protesters were arrested, and a 14-year-old was stabbed with a bayonet. This is one Nikorna Miller who became the first Mohawk woman to compete in the Olympic Games. The Oka crisis resulted in the First Nations policing policy to prevent future misunderstandings from occurring. It also resulted in the documentary featured in this podcast. The events were similar to the 1977-78 Maori occupation of Bastion Point, Auckland, New Zealand, documented in Marita Mita's 1980 documentary Bastion Point, Day 507, which seems to have been an inspiration for Alanis Obomsawin's film. Director Alanis Obomsawin was born on August 31st, 1932, in New Hampshire, USA. At six months old, Alanis's parents moved to the Odenac Reserve near Sorrel, Quebec, Canada. Her father died from tuberculosis when she was 12. Alanis didn't learn English until she was 22 and living in Florida. In the 1950s, she moved to Montreal, became a singer-songwriter, and toured Canada, the USA, and Europe. Her purpose was for our people to have a voice, having our existence recognized, speaking about our values, our survivals, our beliefs, 
that it's okay to be an Indian, to be a native person in this country. She came to the attention of the National Film Board of Canada through her political activism. The native children of Odenak were no longer allowed to swim at the St. Francis River, and the local swimming pool was whites only. This was in the mid-1960s. Alanis started a fundraising campaign to raise money for another pool. Alanis recalled that the film board saw a TV interview she had given, and I was invited by some producers to talk to some of the filmmakers there. She became an advisor on Aboriginal people for a production, and in 1971 began to direct films for the board. Births progressed through the channel of history. On. May the 16th, Atticus Mitchell, the Canadian actor and musician. December the 20th, Andrea Balotti, the Italian soccer player. Apparently not many people were doing the business in Canada and Italy. We now take a step back from conflict and move to sunny Italy for Caro Diario. Dear Diary. Director, script and actor, Nanni Moretti. Director of photography, Giuseppe Lanzi. Script, Mirko Garone. Music, Nicolò Piovani. Actors, Jennifer Beals, Giovanni Bozzolo, Guilio Basse, Carlo Mazzucurati, and Silvana Mangano. Comedian, Nanni Moretti, directs and stars in a movie about his life. The style is one which Baron Sasha Cohen perfected in Borat, among other films. The tipping-off point is reality TV. This is an early example of that genre. The film is told in three ever-more-scripted sequences. In the first sequence, Moretti motors through Rome on his Vespa, in an echo to the ending of Fellini Roma, musing over the architecture and his inability to dance. This has two comic payoffs. The first is when his curiosity takes him into a slum district where he tells one of the inhabitants it isn't as bad as he thought. The second payoff has two parts. Moretti admits his desire to dance comes from watching the movie Flashdance. When he accidentally comes across Jennifer Beals, a discussion on dancing gets sidetracked into a debate over whether calling someone off is synonymous with calling them crazy. The second payoff has Nani watch some dancers. This leads into a fantasy sequence. The joke is that even in this fantasy, Moretti sucks as a dancer-singer. In the second sequence, Moretti and his friend search for a quiet spot to write a film script, possibly this film. They go island hopping off the coast of Italy. The gag is that Moretti's friend is addicted to US soap operas. This has a payoff when they finally arrive on an island that has the peace and quiet they require. The last sequence tells the saga of how Moretti finally got diagnosed with lymphatic cancer. He begins with an uncontrollable itch. His first mistake is to go straight to a specialist, a dermatologist, instead of his GP. When that cure doesn't work, he goes from specialist to specialist, who assume the problem falls within their specialization, otherwise why would he be there? 
Moretti only wises up after he has a room of useless medications and has tried several quack cures. The moment of clarity comes when it is suggested to him the problem is psychosomatic. He realizes everyone has been treating these symptoms and not the cause. Therefore, the cause is probably not dermatological. After a proper consultation and investigation of his symptoms, the correct diagnosis of cancer is discovered. Director Nani Moretti was born on August 19, 1953, in Bruneck, Italy. Nani has devoted his life to two passions, cinema and water polo. In 1970, he played first division water polo in Italy and was on the junior national team. After leaving school, he sold his stamp collection to buy a Super 8 film camera and has been making movies ever since debuting in 1978. He is also the co-owner of a cinema. Nani was a member of the Youth League of the Italian Communist Party. His political activity led to him protesting against the corrupt government of Silvio Berlusconi. The autobiographical Caro Diario was Nani's first, but not last, film to be selected for the Cannes Film Festival. He said, to make an autobiographical film is a way of revealing oneself, but it's also a way of hiding oneself. This might be better explained by a later quote when he said, It's important to tell a story in a non-academic manner. You should never have a flat and ordinary relationship with the material you want to present. Director of Photography Giuseppe Lanzi was born on May the 1st, 1942, in Rome, Italy. Giuseppe graduated from the Centro Sperimentale du Cinematografia and thereafter let his work speak for itself. Directors he has worked with include Marco Balloccio, Paolo and Vittorio Taviani, Lina Wertmuller, Andrei Tarkovsky, Margaret von Trotta, Mauro Bolognini, Luis Supolveda, and Robert Benigni. When you've got these names on your CV, what more do you need? Actor Jennifer Beals was born on December the 19th, 1963, in Chicago, Illinois, USA. Jennifer was the progeny of an interracial marriage. Her father died when she was nine. She grew up always sort of outside, which explains her support when she said, I'm always shocked that gay marriage is such a big deal. To grudge someone else their love of another person because of gender seems to be absolutely absurd. It's based in fear of the other. When you're able to see lives on a day-to-day -day basis rather than reducing it to politics, then it humanizes a whole community of people that were otherwise invisible. Jennifer graduated from Yale Uni in 1987 with a degree in American literature. Short course, I'm guessing. Her film career began in 1980 with My Bodyguard, but it was 1983's Flashdance that brought her to a large-scale public. Next episode, we're doing a bit of a world tour to explore the careers of a clown, a crook, and a horse. 
If you want to investigate movie history more closely, I recommend the Movie Chronicles ebook series, available at any e-store near you. If you would like to help this podcast keep churning out episodes like the stomach of a Brit on a foreign holiday, then why not become a Patreon or Buzzsprout supporter? Why not indeed? Until next time, kia kaha.